0: You are listening to the Rooted Ministry Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered ministry to youth. For more information about Rooted, visit our website at www.rootedministry.com.
1: So I'm Liz Edrington, and um, I work for a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I've been there two years, going into my third year. I work with youth and young adults, and I'm also a counselor. So I see clients at a counseling center on Mondays in Chattanooga. And then I'm at the church the rest of the week, which I'm super grateful for because I feel called to the church first and foremost, so it's a gift to get to be there. And I was a youth director for six years before I went to seminary for counseling. And um, yeah, just have learned a lot. I'm, I'm continuing to learn a lot about shame's role in my life, in the world. And there are a few things I think Satan loves to use more than shame. So I'm grateful to shed a little bit light, a little more in-depth today. A couple of the workshops have included information on shame, which I'm super grateful for because I don't think I can get enough. Um, But I'll start by saying we're kind of in a pickle to even start talking about shame because it's not an abstract idea. And to talk about it in this way makes it seem like a philosophy or a construct that's abstract. Um, But it's not just this thing out there. It's an embodied reality. And it impacts all of us. It's one of the most universal things out there. So we can't really do a lot with it without looking at our own stories and where shame is in our own lives. Otherwise, we do a disservice to the people we're trying to love in their shame. And I know you're not here for shame 101 to work on your work on your own story in your life, to face your shame. Um, but one of the primary things I actually hope you'll take away from this is that because shame begets shame. Because shamed people shame people, the work you do in your own life with, by, in and through the Lord and looking at and dealing with your own shame truly is holy work. It's it's something that plays out in your ministry when you take the time in safe, trusted relationships with a mentor, a friend, a counselor to look at and know where your own shame lies, where it is. So if you are, one of my counselors once told me, or I think a supervisor, you can never take someone further on their journey than you've gone yourself. You can never enter into a, a dark place with someone else or a student until you can you know, only like take them as far as you've gone yourself. And that's a, that's a weighty invitation. Um, and I'm grateful for the invitation that was given to me. Um, as I, and I think one of, the, one of the biggest ways Satan uses shame to k- keep us from Jesus is through keeping us from receiving his forgiveness. It's actually we can kind of know these things in our head, but one of the prime places I've seen it, I work a lot with folks who've dealt with sexual abuse or trauma and I'm one of the most powerful groups I've worked with, a group of really courageous women facing their sexual abuse. What I when I saw it was that they couldn't receive one another's love, compliments, encouragement. There's this thing, a barrier that happens where I, I can't receive even the forgiveness of the Lord. It's such a deep deep-seated identity issue and um, I'm going to tell you a story about it so we'll get get a little bit of a better picture of one way it looked in my life so back I think it was 2009 I had taken a group of 15 students or so on this mission trip to Jamaica and I'd kept them alive for the whole week which was a miracle Um, we had managed to I think it was a nine-day trip we had a great time it was exhausting we're doing hard work and we took, we woke up at 3 a.m. to take this three-and-a-half-hour bus ride through the mountains back to the airport to fly out. And all of the students, when they had come to Jamaica, had put their passports in the suitcase that was in one of the staffers of Southern Servants in their little house. So all, this, all the passports were in there in plastic baggies. We had our own gallon plastic baggie of passports. And so when it was time to go that morning, I went and got our passports. We hop in the bus at 3 a.m. 3 a.m., the kids are, like, throwing their heads out the window to throw up. It's just, it was crazy town getting back to the airport. We're exhausted. Great week. We get to the airport, and this brother-sister pair did not have their passports. And, you know, not too big of a deal, except when you're, like, for me, I was a 25, 26-year-old woman. And the call to these parents, when it turned out, so they had had their their own passports in their own baggie and not in the rest. So airports don't care about photocopied passports. They don't care. They want the actual passport, of course. And there was no way to get their passports to us before we left. So I send the rest of my group on the plane with another volunteer leader or two, stay back with these kids. And I can remember calling their mom who's just not the mom you want to call when something like this has happened. She does not care her kids have been kept alive for the last week and known the Lord deeper and, um, you know, had a great time. It was, she laid into me. I'm talking like, I can't believe this. I trusted you. I thought, you're supposed to be an adult. Um, She... The words she said hit whatever shame trigger I had in me that just broke me down. I can remember weeping in this airport with her poor... Her kids are with me. I'm undone. I'm a failure. I am worthless. I have no right to be in youth ministry. I um, These these phrases, these identity-based shame phrases were just seeping into my mind and my heart. Um, and she was rightfully upset, of course. I get that. And it, it would be very different for me today to handle that situation that I, I can remember that feeling viscerally in my stomach of I'm a horrible person I'm a failure so that is that's a picture of it from my life we're going to use that to kind of keep keep moving here let's look at the top of our page of Romans 838 so when I like to come back to you for I'm convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation, and I've added, including shame, will be able to separate us from the love of God that it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the furthest extent of the way God's love reaches into our lives, coming for us through Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from him. He is our hope here. Not that we can figure it out ourselves, work it out, fig- like conceptualize it correctly. It is the love of Jesus Christ. And we always want to come back to that. So, that's our, that's kind of my theme verse for basing this talk around. But we're going to start at the origins of shame to get a working definition also. So Genesis 1.25. I find it profound that in Scripture it's included, and I don't think it's an accident, that the Lord, like, or that Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were naked and felt no shame. The fact that that's in the Word of God is very powerful. It could have been they were naked and happy as clans. You know, something else. But it wasn't. There's an intentional note that shame wasn't in the picture pre-fall, that they're they're glorious. They don't have this self-consciousness, this judgment, this thing that becomes a different kind of clothing. So in Genesis 3, then, we read, Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden tree, and their eyes were opened. And the first thing they do is start managing their shame. The first thing they do is sew fig leaves together to make a covering. And when I think about this, when I think of the fig leaves we use to manage our shame, I think of self justifications for our shameful behaviors, rationalizations for our addictions. So even Netflix, thinking of like that next one that comes on, like how many different reasons in my head. Well, my self care for this week, like I've got to, you know, there are just so many reasons that we can justify these shameful behaviors or places that are taking us over with shame. So Adam and Eve do their best to manage their shame, to make themselves feel better, right? They're actually not dealing with it. They're just putting fig leaves over themselves. And then when they hear the Lord walking through the garden, they hide. So thinking, managing and hiding. These are big themes in thinking about shame. When invited to exposure and confession, so if you're sitting with a student and you know something has happened, maybe there's something sexual going on in their lives that is not of the Lord, it's not good, and you know... You all, I'm sure so many of you felt this tension. Like, how do we, how do we do this? Because when they're invited to exposure and confession, there's always, there's often denial, right? So we get to be invited to be incarnational presences of grace, like the Lord, with the Lord, through the Lord. But there's often denial. That's that hiding. It's almost, it is a garden reaction. It's this: we're used to managing, and then we hide. And then in Scripture we see the Lord walking in the cool of the day. The strong, gentle, and I like to imagine Aslan. He just gives me a physical picture of a lion. He's terrifying, but good. The where are you? Where are you? That question. So the managing, the hiding, and then what's our role, even in starting with a student, if we've a safe, trusted relationship with them, we've built up connection. Where are you? This is huge for us as ministers, as parents. The first act of the Lord's interaction with Adam and Eve, after they've disobeyed him, they've said, forget it, I'm doing things my own way, is, where are you? And we know he's God. We know he has no question of where they are. This is primarily an engagement question. He's not actually trying to figure out where they are. It's, all right, where are you? Um, He doesn't shame them first, either. He doesn't just say, hey, what, what, hey, what were you doing? You know, are you stupid? Like, he says, where are you? So, gentle, gracious, inviting questions, Where are you? Versus direct attack. I heard you were sleeping with your boyfriend. Are you kidding me? They're the path of wisdom for us as youth ministers and parents. So back to Genesis. When we hear the confession, you know, we ate of the apple. And then we hid, right? The curses come for sin. And then the Lord performs this act of grace making garments for Adam and Eve out of animal skins. So he gives them a better garment, which is a foreshadowing of the righteousness of Christ that we have, the covering, full covering of Christ. This gracious act is such a big deal that he, he provides this, these animal skins for them to cover up with, um, a foretaste of the promise. And I think it's something to think about too when you're sitting with a student what does it mean for me to, to cover their shame in a way, to not almost like, Praying through, what does it mean to come in through the back door to be a safe place for them to be exposed versus just tearing tearing away their fig leaves and being like, I see. Um, what does it mean for us to clothe them or help them know they've been clothed in the grace of, of Christ? So we're going to keep moving. By shame, we do not merely mean the emotion of embarrassment. This is a big deal because it's often talked about just in emotional terms, and that's not what we mean by shame. Embarrassment might be a sign of shame at work, but even when we think about Adam's experience in the garden, it was a more integrated, holistic experience that played out in how he related to himself, to God, and to Eve, and eventually to all of creation, right? So it's more of a neuropsychological state than just an emotion. Kurt Thompson, this book is incredible if you have not read it. It's called The Soul of Shame. He's a Christian psychiatrist in Virginia. Um, And a lot of this... Material definitely comes from his book, The Soul of Shame. Kurt Thompson says, One way to approach its essence is to understand it as an undercurrent of sensed emotion. And this is what's on your paper. That's right. Of which we may have either a slight or robust impression that, should we put words to it, would declare some version of I'm not enough. There's something wrong with me. I am bad or I don't matter. And... I would guess most of you know who Brene Brown is, and Dave just referenced her. Shame researcher. She's done some phenomenal work here and exposes so much of the truths we see in Scripture without giving giving her research Christian words or theology. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Flawed and unworthy of love and belonging. And that's from Daring Greatly. And so... What's neat that as believers in the Word of God, also, we get to distinguish her statement from depravity, from, from sin here. I'm going to take a second just to do that, even as we go into the difference between shame and guilt. So, one way we're distinguishing, when we think about sin, so the fact we, when we like Adam and Eve, chose to do things our own way, to rebel against God, Sin impacts all parts of us. Our thinking, I think of people in triangles, our thinking, our believing, our... our Sorry, our thinking, our feeling, our behaving. There is no part of you that is without sin. In extent, it has touched all parts of us. By degree, it has not. So extent, completely. Total depravity, all parts of me. Degree, I'm not as sinful as I could be, actually. I'm not evil. And when Brene is saying, you know, this experience of believing we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. This is, this is different than this is different than sin. So this is where when we're made in the image of God, this glorious dignity. We have to get our creation theology, right? Y'all we've got to get our creation order, right? Where we are made as humans that are glorious in God's image. And there's a dignity that no one can strip away ever at the core of that. That is what falls. It's not that we start with depravity. We start with that dignity. And when a shame, an issue of shame comes in, it's like we begin writing new stories from that shame. We are a storied people. We're being restoried through Christ. Shame writes stories. And part of what we invite our students to do is to, to look for here and figure out what story is being written in that moment when you're washed over by shame, in that moment where that mom said to me, I trusted you. You're supposed to be an adult. The story of I'm not worth being in ministry, I'm not good enough, I'm a failure, that just, without me even realizing, sets off. So returning to even good creational foundation is, is important. Um, okay, guilt and shame, I'm betting you all know this. Guilt says more like I did something bad. Shame, I am bad. So guilt is much more behavioral. It's the result of probably an action or sometimes perceived. Sometimes we feel guilty, even though we haven't done anything. Shame. It's that identity rooted. I am bad. I'm lesser than. I am unworthy. I am a failure. uh, I'm unlovable. Guilt lives in the courtroom. This is a Kurt Thompson thing I really like. Guilt lives in the courtroom where you stand before a judge and expect punishment and need forgiveness. Shame lives in community. So although community can feel like a courtroom, we're talking about how in community we hear or receive these messages of you don't belong, you are unacceptable, unclean, disgraced, worthless, a failure, lesser than. They're bigger statements, deeper statements. They're statements of disconnection, and that's what shame threatens to do is to disconnect. Um, Someone even writes about it, might be Brene, as the fear of disconnection. And these are the statements I was asking some of my high school girls Uh, leading up to this, like, where do you see shame around you? And they, even with a little bit of teaching, it's hard to just identify that. You kind of have to lean your way into it. And they would say, and you you too, I'm sure, have heard this, that the awkward statement, the weird, when someone is different or weird, the shame of like they don't belong is very, very powerful, or even believing you don't belong because you don't fit in or you don't have that image or that beauty. Um, Believing they're worthless because boys don't ask them out. They haven't had a boyfriend. They weren't asked to dance. Um, believing they're a failure if they don't have great academics. Um, they don't know which college they want to go to. They're not sure what they want to study in college. This performance that they're not reaching becomes a place of shame. It's universal. No one likes talking about it. And shame grows in silence, y'all. Um, that's one of the things I have on my little man on this chart. It grows in silence. And it's a real pain. This study fascinated me. It's actual pain when we experience this stuff. A 2011 neuroscience study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health and the National Institute on Drug Abuse found that as far as the brain is concerned, physical pain and intense experiences of social rejection hurt in the same way. Isn't that stunning? So it's actual pain. And when we we minimize like a kid who comes to us saying like, oh, man, my boyfriend broke up with me. And this is this kid they've dated for two weeks walking through the hall. And you're like, what? This is ridiculous. But that's a real experience of pain, which means it's also a real invitation to love there and to usher in the gospel there and for them to know who their identity in Christ is instead of their fig leaf identity of shame. Um, so what are some clues in distinguishing appropriate conviction and appropriate guilt from shame? That's a big one, too, because we're not going to demonize both guilt and shame. Guilt tends to be dealt with through justice and forgiveness, so that courtroom, whereas shame resists forgiveness. Shame resists forgiveness. It holds onto its fig leaves for dear life in fear of being exposed, fully seen and loved, and it tends to blame something or someone else. So when we feel that, we start judging other people. We have this immediate response, or we, so that contempt for someone else or for ourselves, we rationalize, we hide in order to keep full grasp of our fig leaves. Legitimate guilt, so I've done something wrong and I'm feeling convicted, I'm feeling guilty, the Lord has brought that upon me, it tends to influence us positively to make amends. Whereas shame tends to be destructive, disintegrating. It corrodes relationship with the self and with others. So if you imagine someone apologizing for having wronged you, and imagine, that's the difference between this, so guilt and shame. Imagine someone apologizing for having wronged you, like, so sorry, I forgot your birthday, Liz. Versus, I'm so sorry, I'm a horrible human being. So uh, someone apologizing for just being them. We've all heard that. This like, When you see it in people's postures, it's just this, like, I'm sorry for being alive. There's deep shame there. Apologizing for existing, deep shame. Um, let's take a look at this handout that I hope will give a little bit more construct for some of what we're talking about. We've got our little shame man. So he's our anatomical figure that my sweet friend Carrie drew for us. And in his head, you see, so shame's felt essence precedes language in our brain. And this is is a huge point I want to make. We cannot battle it well with cognitive, rational truths. So when you have a kid that is steeped in shame and you pull out your Bible and just start reading scripture at them, you are potentially doing more damage because they are going to just grip those fig leaves for dear life. Shame is so much more all encompassing than that. It's, you can't, even we can't just talk to it. How well does it do you to t- talk yourself out of shame? Not great, sometimes out of an emotional experience, but, and I'll get to this um, at the bottom, but the, the only hope or movement through shame is through grief and sorrow and vulnerability. It really is not something you can think your way over or around. That's why addiction is so potent, because the work of going through it, of doing that grief work in community or with people, it's hard. It's really hard. It's so worth it. It's where we are being stripped down and learning to bear our crosses, and it's where death happens that the Lord brings life from. But it is hard. It's hard work. So sometimes those cognitive rational truths, because our minds are broken too, perpetuate our shame. Two, it colors our story, how we view our very worth and belonging, this pointing to the eyes. Shame colors our world. Again, the stories we write that come out of it. At his mouth, we see it silences us, and it grows in silence. The pointing finger that Dave just talked about really well, it contributes to us judging and shaming others. So we often shame other people out of where we have been shamed. <clears throat> the little container this guy is holding, the more we try to contain it, the more pressure we use, actually the more evasive it becomes. So if I go on by myself on an all-out shame-conquering battle, trying to like put it here, it's probably going to become worse also. It's going to become more evasive. It's going to eke out like a balloon when you push them side down. It's going to eke out into another place in my life. Um, Alice Chernock gave an incredible example of a tree, um, her shame tree, where you cut off one of the shame branches, another one's going to grow. So if we're not dealing with the roots, it just keeps moving. The heart. Its power lies more in its emotional state, than an identifiable fact. So it's, again, when we come out of it, when we come out it cognitively through truths this way, chances are we might even grow it because it's an emotional, neuropsychological state. The hand—it's contagious. Um, this looks so many different ways, um, and I experienced it last night. I'll just give that example. Um, I had this delightful guy. I was sitting the most wonderful dinner last night, y'all, and um, sitting with two delightful married guys, and he'd asked me. If I was married and in my story, I get washed over with this sense of shame of I'm not, I'm not married. There's something wrong with me. That's my, it's a part of my shame. And so I, I could tell it made him uncomfortable. And I spoke to that at some point, but even that he felt like, Oh, should I not have asked that? Is that a bad thing to ask? Kind of shame just ekes out in your response. I was thinking later, if I hadn't had that shame, what did, what would I have said? Something the effect of like, Nope, not yet. Or like, can't wait for that. But it just ekes out. Um, so it's contagious. It likes to paralyze us, so that's at the feet. It is, it can be very isolating and paralyzing. Um, shame food, just two basics at the bottom of the page silence, isolation. This is all kind of stuff we know, but it can be really powerful to give words to. Telling ourselves we shouldn't be ashamed, y'all. Holy cow. Again, while you can't battle it by yourself, it's uh, <laughs> the Lord brings healing through relationship. Because immediately, even if you see it, you're like, well, I shouldn't be feeling that. Or have you had that happen when you're like, oh, I just feel like I look terrible today, or whatever it is. Someone's like, oh, you shouldn't feel like that. How helpful is that? <laughs> Super unhelpful. <laughs> doesn't actually deal with the roots. Um, rationalizing it, spiritualizing it, blaming others for it. All this tends to grow it. And I put a little continuum. I thought this might be helpful, too, to give more body to what we're talking about. The interpersonal continuum of shaming. So this is interpersonal, between people. And I, there's tons we can put in here. There are tons of things. But let's just look at kind of top to bottom. So silence or lack of response in terms of between people. Here's what that might look like. So say a child brings up sex with their parent. Um, and the parent, instead of addressing that, changes the subject immediately. So they haven't, they haven't intentionally shamed them. They haven't said anything to them. But they change the subject And communicate to the the child, essentially, there's something, that's something shameful to talk about. We don't talk about that in our house, which is, this is pervasive amongst all of us, especially in the church, where, um, either we've been shamed in our own lives or carry it. And so sex sex becomes a topic that's shameful to talk about just because we're not talking about it. Um, or another example would be when a child tells a youth leader a story about being rejected after they've, um, maybe asked someone to a dance. And the youth later says nothing. Or they, again, just read a scripture to them about how the Lord should be their priority. So that can be really shaming. Instead of addressing the heart of what's going on, listening, just jump to a fix. Condescending glance, eye roll, tone of voice. You all see this. You see um, how it looks when, oh, goo, I was in a high school. One of my friends was teaching a junior class. And... She'd asked a question. It was a Bible class. And the sweet kid in the front row raises her hand, really excited to answer. And I watched these two girls in the back roll their eyes and just start snickering about. I'm sure the student that answers questions more often than the rest of the class. But this shameful, like, posture, um, tone of voice, just like, oh, that kid again. So shameful. And bullying happens a lot that way. And just in this under, undercurrents. Insinuating statements. The shoulds and shouldn'ts regarding feelings.! Ah, if I had a soapbox, this would be it. Should feel, shouldn't feel. don't shoot on yourselves. This is the worst. It's <laughs> <laughs> not good. <laughs> Catch it. Catch people shooting on themselves. Bring them back. Emotions just are. God, they're broken too, but God gave us emotion, and it just is. Cannot talk yourself out of it. You acknowledge it, and then you get to decide what to do with it. Um, you shouldn't feel like that. You, people who eat like that, these are examples of maybe a mother to a daughter, people who eat like that end up in Weight Watchers, insinuating statements, so shaming. Um, or even a dad, if it's a joke, I've heard this, like a dad to a daughter, you're dressed like a prostitute, you're just like a whore. Um, that has a huge impact. That insinuates something horrible. You know, you are worthless, you are... You are shameful. You're disgusting. Direct statements would be kind of a more intense, the top of this continuum. Direct statements and actions. You don't belong in this family. You're worthless. I'm ashamed of you. No one will ever love you. There's something fundamentally wrong with you. Those are hard hitters. Hard, hard hitters. Um, shame remedy? Shame remedy? We've talked about a, a little bit, and did any of y'all do Sharon Hirsch's workshop yesterday? Were any of y'all in her workshop, YouTuber? Okay, this actually is going to be somewhat of a, a repeat, but I think it's going to be helpful because I got to learn under her in seminary, so some of this also comes from her excellent teaching. So shame, shame, remedy. Let's look at that before we even turn the page. Incarnation, cross, resurrection. This is our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in a God who's reached out to us. It's not in us reaching out to him. It is in what he has done, not in what we do. Empathy. This is Brene Brown's big thing, empathy. And to me, that's just another picture of the incarnation. This is where we meet people where they are. Um, We take a second to let our own emotion, imagining where they've been or a time in our lives, what that's been like. We connect with that so that we can offer them that similar reflection of their emotion, meet them where they are, put ourselves in their shoes. Vulnerability. Sorrow, brokenness, grieving. The only way to heal it is to go through it. Hear me say that in relationship. And really to catch yourself where you're trying to go around it or over it. For me, that's very rationally. I like to try to think myself around it or over it. And sometimes I need a friend that knows me to speak into that to break through it. We want to attend to it, so to pay attention to it in light of the bigger story versus trying to fix it with lesser tactics. So trying to fix it with more fig leaves. Sometimes we can even make the Bible another fig leaf. Just smack it on there. Hide that up. Right. So attending to it in light of the whole bigger story, that incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, that creation, goodness, that dignity that cannot ever fully be taken away because it is who are made in God's image. Um, let's turn the page and we'll do a little practical kind of movement through these shame circles. So just a, a little bit here at the bottom. Dignity and depravity is the center. It, it looks like an egg only because I couldn't get the, I'm terrible with computers. So just imagine them all concentrically, more like a tree instead of like a weird egg. Um, so we actually experience shame around both our dignity and our depravity. And that's, that's a big thing. It is not just our sin that causes us shame. It can be a way you've gloriously been made in God's image, a gift. Um, a way that you are warm and compassionate, a way that you are gregarious, your heart for justice, whatever it is that reflects God's image, that you can also feel deep shame about. So that and your brokenness. And so if you imagine kind of layers of a person, these move out. So feel shame about one of those things. And what happens to cover the shame, so maybe first fig leaf would be self-contempt or other-centered contempt. You see this in kids. If it's other-centered contempt, angry kids who are just like out to pick at you, out to like push your buttons. They uh. A lot, sadly, abuse causes us a lot, just this like, try to take me, kind of tough, I hate the world, emo can look like that, someone that's just ready to attack. The other, the self-contempt that's also response is fists, so I think of fists out and fists in, fists in on themselves. This depression is often the fists in on myself. I beat the poop out of myself because I've, sh- I've done it again, you know. I've made the same mistake. I've slept with my boyfriend again. Whatever it is, it's this, I am horrible. You beat yourself up. It gets you stuck there. Um, And that's a response to shame. So these are responses moving out. Next is going to be fear of exposure or rejection. So that next layer, another protective thing we've got going on, fear of rejection or exposure. Um, That really you see, I don't know if you see that as much as performance. Performance. So the the high-achieving kids... The, but, but I mean, it's all of us, so it's going to look different in each kid. Just the more obvious would be a high achiever, a people pleaser, um, star athlete, the, the the comedian, that kid who just always cracks a joke um, because there likely might be some shame under there. But sometimes there's a more integrated, I mean, these, not to say those attributes are only hiding shame, those can be really good things, but sometimes they are. So let's look at Julie and Dan because you all might have students or kids that look like them and see if we can work through this movement with our shame circles. So Julie, she's deep-feeling. She's compassionate. Um, She's known for her heart for mercy. So she loves working in inner-city mission trips, um, helping out. She believes she's too much and that she's unlovable. I'm just too much. I'm too emotional. There's too much going on in me. She sometimes thinks, I hate it when girls are so dramatic. I hate drama. I don't like when people are dramatic. If you've worked with girls, you've heard this so much. <laughs> hate drama. Um, she believes that she actually... She believes that if she... Sorry for the typo. If she actually shared how much the war in Syria matters to her, her friends would think she's ridiculous and so over the top. She's super high-achieving. She's an A-plus student who loves to debate and intellectualize. She's willing to share her mind with others, but not her heart. So where do you see her... Do you think that her... Shame is more focused around her dignity or her depravity here. What do you think? Yeah. Okay, so what's her dignity? Let's give it words. How do we see that she's made the image of God in here? Uh-huh. Compassionate. Yeah. Deep feeling. Merciful. Merciful. Awesome. Where do we see the shame words moving out? She's too much.
0: Ridiculous.
1: Ridiculous. Unlovable, yes. And then what does she do with it? Is she an other, other-centered contempt or self-contempt kind of person? Self-contempt. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. People are going to think I'm ridiculous. Fear of rejection and exposure. Where do we see that? someone knew. If my friends on my mind but not her. yeah that's right I will give you this but I can't show you who the Lord's actually made me to be and, and caring so deeply performance that's pretty obvious she's a super high achieving A plus student loves to debate and intellectualize so that's where she hides her fig leaves are mainly in that Dan addicted to pornography it's our student here um, to using people for his own sexual pleasure he feels so disgusted in himself. And he believes he's worthless. can't believe this is still a part of my life, he thinks. He often finds himself thinking things like, I'm such a piece of crap. I hate myself for continuing to look at this stuff. Dan believes that if anyone knew about his issue with porn, if they really knew him, they would think he was the worst. A fraud. He's known as the comedian in his group of friends, and he always has a joke for any situation. So what's his shame centered around? Depravity. Depravity. Ooh, wait, what? Someone say both. I would love that answer. (laughs) Um, It could be both. Because I think the way he's made to be deeply, intimately connected and known. So a glorious part of his sexuality has been, then there's depravity. But you could even argue, I think it's more depravity. But there's dignity before there's depravity. So his shame, we see in his disgust with himself. He believes he's worthless. How about self-contempt or other-centered contempt? Which one? Yeah, that's self-contempt, which is perpetuating of addiction. And then, how about fear of rejection or exposure? Exposure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, probably both, but definitely mm-hmm. exposure, too, if anyone knew. Mm-hmm. And then, how's he performing? Comedian. Mm-hmm. Yep, comedian, always jokes. And the point of this is not—it's not a one-way movement. Like if I figure this out and get to where my kid's performing, I'm set. But it gives you a rhythm, when you kind of a way to understand the fig leaves and how we work, and which, like when you see that kid that's just so shut down and angry, they're probably stuck. They're not even trying to perform; they're just angry, right? So they're stuck there. And you meet them there. You meet them in the anger. You don't try to meet them where they're not. Um, I like this. I was thinking about trying to distinguish guilt and shame in the garden um, and what that would have maybe looked like, so bear with me. I'm not trying to rewrite scripture, but Mm -hmm. in the garden, if we imagine Adam and Eve, guilt would have said, yeah, I ate the apple, and it wasn't right. Then I put on some leaves. Thanks for forgiving me for that, Jesus. And yes, please, I'll take that imputed righteousness. Right? Shame. Might say one of two things, thinking about that other center contempt and the self-contempt. Shame might say, lots of people eat apples, so of course I ate it. People have no self-control. My fig leaves are just fine, thank you. They're serving their purpose perfectly. I don't need any help. Or it might say, I can't believe I ate that apple. I am the worst of the worst. Only disgusting, horrible people eat apples. I am undeserving of your imputed righteousness. I can't receive that. People like me should only wear fig leaves. That's all they deserve. Whew. Even to read that gives me just... Oh, um, that self-contempt, y'all, it can be so powerful. And only the grace of the Lord through Jesus Christ can break through this. This is, again, that, like, we are made, imputed righteousness, that new clothing, that new identity in Christ, that new story, that really, so grace renews creation, right? That hearkens back to the dignity they were made for. We've got to keep those two together, that dignity and that grace renews creation. Um, yeah, so, I've given you a lot of The identity of it, a lot of descriptors and details. And if I gave you a, this is how you fix it, I would not be teaching you about shame. Um, But if we looked back at scripture to see God made him, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, we'd get closer to it. To the story where Jesus, in a sense, becomes, he takes our shame on himself. And dies for it, pays the penalty for it. And so that's that double, oh gosh, Julius Kim's talk, y'all. It's the double imputation. It's that he takes it on himself when that, the picture of it in the Old Testament, when he lays on that dead body and then receives life. Take your sin. I give you life. First Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. It's through the wounds. It's not around them or over them. Through his wounds. There's a real experience, I think, of entering into shame with people. It's the incredible honor of being a counselor. When you get to, you're invited into a place that's been unknown or unshared, it feels holy. Um, this entering into their wound is such a, you know, if we, if we injured our arm and it was bleeding profusely, just to have, allow someone to come over and actually touch it and be very, very vulnerable. And in a sense, in the rebreaking, in the death that has to happen before life—that's what happens when we enter into shame with people. It's a real death. It's a real entering into a tender place. Even if they're fighting you, right? Like underneath that is a tender place that needs grief. There's a wound there. There's something that has happened, and grieving is a process. That's not a once and done. I'm even thinking right now about a couple of girls I've had shame conversations with in the last couple of weeks, and their initial conversations—they, I need to go back and continue to. Invite them to what, how it's impacting them, to more vulnerability, grieving, sorrow. Um, not that they'll be undone all the time, but in a place to have a, a place to be facing that, and growing into their new clothes. Was that Scott Sauls? I think it was. That awesome. Mm-hmm. In Christ, we're growing. We're growing into. You are fully clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and you're growing into that, just like a kid growing into adult clothes. Uh, Hebrews is the last verse I had on here that I really loved in reference to this. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's our hope. The one who took it, the one who sees it, disintegrate us, disconnect us, isolate us. The one who knows us there. The one who took that—it's that place that's on our mind, and we think about our own lives and our shame because we all have it. Everyone has it. It's universal. That's where he meets you. That's where he loves you. Um, I'm gonna pause there and let y'all have a chance to ask questions if you'd like. Um, Yeah. So,
0: do you think shame can be subconscious, like you're
1: not even aware? I think shame is almost always subconscious. Great question.
0: So there's one girl she, that I have that is exuding a lot of the things that, But I can tell she's not aware that she does this so often. Yeah. Because it comes off that way. That mm-hmm. uh, she's just... It's so ingrained into her personality.
1: Yeah, because it's an identity thing, right? Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, also... Which also, there's a history of abuse in her family, traditional mm. abuse. So I'm assuming that has to be, that's a lot of the cause mm-hmm. um, of it all.
1: She'll have a lot to grieve one day. Yeah. And her maybe so, not. But
0: she's very stubborn and very, she's a very holier than thou type. Mm. That, but, mm-hmm. but she also is the one that constantly beats herself up.
1: Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Yeah.
0: Um, early on, you, you uh, were talking about if uh, like if uh, if a kid comes to you with you know something to confess, um, how to to use gentle leading questions rather than kind of direct attack. Remember that. Mm-hmm. Yep. I to get
1: you to tease that out. That and
0: maybe talk more about that. Mm-hmm. That's intriguing.
1: Yeah, it's going to be so case to case, and it's going to depend on your relationship with that student, right? So if they if you know, say it's a kid that has a porn addiction struggle, and He's slipped up again, and he's coming to you. you. You're working on this. You're kind of in the context of knowing that. He comes to you, over overwhelmed, might even be more guilt, but it's connected to a shame. And you get to be a place of absolution and of forgiveness for him. It could be you respond with the words of the Lord, of like, let's remember, you have been forgiven. Your sins are separated for as far as the east is the west from you. Or if it's a new thing they're confessing, it might be that you, by meeting them with compassion and with your own vulnerability of I've had struggles too. You don't even dive in yet. I think you've got to trust the Spirit's leading in your gut on that even. And it's messy. You'll make mistakes. I certainly do. Um, it's not cookie cutter, but definitely what, what is the first way to meet them with the grace of the Lord in love? Always first. And then also, what truth is there in this circumstance maybe to offer or maybe to withhold until another time?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that was helpful like what you said, but just like you can't even think through it logically, so they have to know that, like, our heart is there too and like speaking to the heart. So I That's think right. that, that was really helpful.
1: That's you know, right. Just kind of that mm-hmm. Yeah. And shame is a, even if you neurobiologically know it's operating out of your back brain, not your prefrontal cortex, so you're you're trying to meet it at a place where it isn't even so, if you're speaking that. Yeah. resources because we want really to dive into this like I can even really yeah. I need to know more. Yeah girl. Me too. I, this book is great. Soul of shame. Kurt Thompson. Um <clears throat> anything and everything written by Bernie Brown is great. It's not <clears> highlighting <throat> uh, Especially darling, greatly right now. It's a good one. Mm -hmm. What? How do we spell greatly? Um, She, what's so profound, and you know her research brought her back to Jesus. I don't know if you all know this about her story. It's really neat. She discovered, as she did her own work in this research, that something needed to die for forgiveness to happen. It couldn't just, she couldn't muster it herself. And it brought her back to the Lord. Um, And she still has a tenuous relationship with the church. But when she talks about the fact we're worthy of love and belonging, that's the main basis that her book comes back to. What's sad is that there's no basis for that if we're not talking about this story, about Imago Dei. You're worthy of love and belonging because God made you in his image and through the cross, he has brought you back into his family. Um, both of those are phenomenal. There's another one. Ooh, what is that one called? I think it's called Unashamed. She's an integrator, so Brene Brown's going to be more secular words. These two guys are talking in the context of theology. I think it's Heather Nelson, Heather Davis Nelson, maybe. That's a good one. <clears throat> um, and a place to start, if you have not watched, read, or listened to anything by Brene Brown, would just be YouTube, or not YouTube. She's got two TED Talks, one on shame, one on vulnerability. They're a great start. Watch them with your spouse. Um, And when you're working through what vulnerability actually means in your ministry and rebuilding trust in your lives, there's a new, like, 20-minute clip of her and Oprah talking about trust-building that's awesome. It is awesome. She uses an acronym BRAVING for what it means to build trust. And for someone, so in my past, I grew up with a father I did not trust. Um... He was having an affair for years that I didn't find out until after college. And so I learned later my gut was right there. But as a kid, it's so confusing. And so even building trust was never something I thought of. I just kind of didn't. So wasn't. I had no constructs for it. But that video will really help you think about what it means to build trust or rebuild trust. Um, yeah. Yeah, if you just Googled Brene Brown TED Talks, there are two. One on shame, one on vulnerability. I'd probably watch the first one she did first. I think that was, I don't remember the year. There was one in 2012, and then one in like some years before that, I think. Maybe 2009. Yeah, they're very helpful. Very, very helpful. She's a Texas lady, too. She's nice to read. Yeah.
0: Um, Liz, uh, I appreciate the dichotomy and the difference, the distinction between guilt
1: and shame. Yeah. Um, Could you speak to how to lead someone in repentance,
0: Mm. which kindness to joy, without them veering off the cliff of shame?
1: Mm. Oh, yeah. Gosh. I think the invitation to repentance.
0: (sighs) For someone who is gripped by shame. Yeah.
1: Repent for the kingdom of God is near. I'm thinking about the different ways Jesus approaches people in the New Testament. So you've got the woman at the well who he meets with a conversation. You've got the woman that's about to be stoned. She's caught in adultery where he takes he takes her shame physically. He kneels down. You think like all these men are ready to like stone her and hate her. He draws the whole focus by doing this super weird thing, getting down. That like almost a shift, give them a breath of fresh air to shift the focus. On, on their dignity, onto yourself, maybe even by your own story, by, I don't know what it looks like. What a fantastic question. What does it mean to lead them into repentance?
0: You know, out of kindness to joy. Yeah. And but at least he doesn't uh, minimize their sin. Yeah. He says to, you know, Absolutely. Your, your, you your know, sin no more.
1: Yeah. But, I know. Um, and sometimes shame prevents repentance, right? That's what's so hard. Honestly, sometimes in your own story where you've you've known that shift whatever got through to you, to tell a story okay. can be very, very powerful. To invite that, yeah. never to demand it, which is not what you're saying, but the invitation of, like, come be whole, come remember your whole identity in Jesus, that, like, it's such an invitation. So this and not <laughs> that. Um, yeah,
0: I not walk alongside someone. Yeah. It's a foreign concept to them, if they yeah. always go and off
1: the place. Honestly, your redemptive response—not to shame them when if if or when they shared something with you—is so un- unlike their normal world that that is that's a piece of it. You're showing them grace.
0: Yeah. I'll echo the sentiment. Like for a couple of my boys of um, pornographies, you know that's always the big one. Yeah. And sharing my story along with listening and knowing that in that first time talking to them repentance doesn't need to come that first time it could one of them it took months uh, to really get out of that bubble because he was disgusted with himself as he as this habit and addiction was taking hold of him so it took months until he was just ready you know I just want to give this all to God and I don't I don't want it anymore and I just uh, and he was on his knees crying just crying out to God but it took. It took months to get there. Mm. Sometimes, and other times I've had it where it's just taking a week. It mm. was a whole mission trip, the whole week of the mission trip, had conversations mm. every single day and by Friday. It was like, you know, mm. I repent. So I think the biggest thing is sharing, listening, and let God's timing work, not your own timing.
1: Yeah, yeah, truly, where you've known the grace of God in your life, in your own, broken, in your own brokenness, is such a powerful place to be able to offer grace. Can't, can't say that enough. Thank yeah, thanks for that question. Yeah. I think um, in
0: my own life, I'm not quite the kind of but with, there's a difference. There's a
1: steps of confession. And it has to happen before repentance,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: I think. And so I think um, in my own life, in the process of confession as a young woman, Having a mentor look me in the eye and say, I forgive you, Mm. and God forgives you, helped me to move from just confession into repentance Mm. and actually turning from my sin and not staying in
0: shame, Mm. because I was ashamed and and was able to reach confession, but Mm.
1: having a mentor be able to look me Mm. in the
0: eyes and say, I forgive
1: Mm. you was a powerful representation of
0: christ's
1: forgiveness in my life thanks for sharing that agreed um we are out of time sadly i'm going to be here um so i'm super happy to talk with y'all if you want to ask more questions um thank you for coming let me pray to close this this feels like this is enemy territory truly so let me pray um God, I do ask that you would, by your spirit, protect us in Jesus' name, that you would protect our ministries, that your light would shine into every dark corner of our own lives, that you would bring folks to walk redemptively with us in our own shame, um, that we might know your grace and know you, especially know you, Jesus, deeper in these places in our own lives. Um, I thank you for these folks that are hungry to love their students well. pray that you'd bless them and that you would fill them Um, We know they're perfectly filled by your spirit, but that you'd fill them more and more by awareness of that. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Rooted Podcast, where we hope to communicate the truths of the gospel and apply those truths to youth ministry. We would love for you to check out our website, where we post articles daily geared towards both youth ministers and parents. You will also find more information about our conferences, regional events, and more at www.rootedministry.com.